history nerds and historians. My name is Christina and this is After History. This is where we talk about a little tidbit from history that's super fucked up. This week on Monday was Talk Like a Pirate Day. So naturally, we have to talk about pirates. My pirate accent is not great. So this is how I contribute to the <laughs> national holiday. For any of my non-American listeners, it isn't really that big of a deal. We just like to have fun and focus on these things sometimes so we can ignore the complete dystopian hellscape that our country is devolving into. So in two separate classes this year, I've been able to pick topics to write these like research papers on. I took a class on colonial American history and then a class on ancient China. I was able to write papers about piracy for both because piracy, while it existed in both of these regions, is very different in a lot of ways. And so I, in doing these like research papers and whatnot, have kind of become like this is like a niche topic that while I couldn't at all consider myself an expert in the history of piracy, I've done a lot of research into the history of piracy. So I'm going to sort of divulge some of that information onto you before I talk about three female pirates, Anne Bonnie, Mary Reed, and Ching Shi, but also known by other names as well that we will talk about. I will warn you now that this might be all over the place because it's such a complex history to look into the history of piracy and there's just not enough time because I've like read books for these term papers that were hundreds of pages long and literally talked about like 80 years of history in one region. So without further ado, sit back, relax and practice your oh good god what the fuck faces. So historians and the media have portrayed pirates as this special group of people outside the boundaries of society. I mean, I think almost all of us have watched Pirates of the Caribbean and seen this kind of like grandiose lifestyle of these uh, essentially like Robin Hoods of the sea or whatever that steal from the rich and often corrupt officials and then distribute it amongst their peers. And while this is something that I guess we can kind of interpret aspects of the reality of piracy being true like this. When you actually look at the historical analysis of piracy, a very different picture is painted. So in 1949, a man named Hubert de Champ wrote a book that translates to the Pirates of Madagascar. And he describes pirates as one of my favorite quotes. He says, quote, a unique race born of the sea in a brutal dream a free people detached from other human societies and from the future, without children, without old people, without homes, without cemeteries, without hope, but not without audacity, a people for whom atrocity was a career choice and death a certitude of the day after tomorrow. Then there are other historians like J.L. Anderson who liken pirates to microparasites, saying that pirates are human groups that draw sustenance from the toil and enterprise of others offering nothing in return. And then there are historians like Mark Hanna, who completely blow the idea of piracy out of the water, so to speak. And he says that he doubts that pirates even existed to the extent the popular culture and common belief depicts, saying that it was more likely that individuals engaged in acts of piracy in essentially this consumerist war in the 18th century, and then went on to become respected members of society once they obtained their wealth through their crimes at sea. Now, of course, there are people like Blackbeard the pirate who had this profession as a pirate, but it seems like a lot of the people that were on his ship and um, ships like his were just engaging in acts of piracy just to get by. 
Now, these definitions and ideals are about Atlantic piracy. They cannot be applied to Chinese piracy, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. So James E. Wadsworth states that using the term pirate or piracy when referring to those on the outer edge of Chinese society is extremely problematic and says that it represents an acceptance of the establishment narrative and Western mistranslations of Asian terms that do not necessarily mean pirate in the modern legal sense of the word. So we'll talk about Atlantic piracy first, because I think that's one that a lot of people are more familiar with, just from the way that popular culture depicts it. And then we'll talk about Chinese piracy, or just like Asian piracy in general, because we'll also talk a little bit about like Japanese and Korean pirates as well. So piracy is not something new. Since pretty much we took to the seas as a human race, there have been pirates. So some of the first documented cases of piracy go back to 14th century BCE. This was in the Aegean and Mediterranean seas. It's even mentioned in like the Odyssey and the Iliad. Some of the biggest ancient pirates were the Phoenicians and the Illyrians. And by Illyrians, I don't mean the bat-winged people from the Akatar books by Sarah J. Maas. Just another name that she has stolen from history and mythology and completely changed everything having to do with it. Don't get me started on this because I will devolve into a rant about how dare she take the name the Morrigan and turn her into this blonde piece of trash that treats people like garbage when the Morrigan is one of the best and most badass deities from Celtic mythology. Julius Caesar was also captured by pirates. <laughs> um, and then you have the Vikings who were who were pirates. Now, Viking is the name of a Norse profession, not a group of people who raided and invaded and pillaged and plundered. So they were Norse people who had the profession of Viking, which was very similar to pirates. Even American history and the institution of slavery has its ties to piracy. When in 1619, a privateer took over most likely a Portuguese ship and took all the cargo of which included human cargo. This privateer then brought the 19 enslaved Africans to Jamestown, where they were then sold. And we don't know what happened to them afterwards. But this is the first instance of many, many many people bringing African enslaved people to the British colonies. Now, I do want to sort of put a caveat on that, that many people will say that this is the first instance of people of African descent being in the American colonies. And others say that these were the first enslaved people in the American colonies. And neither one of those is completely true, because there is other documentation of people of African descent who were not enslaved coming to the American colonies, and enslaved Africans being brought to Spanish colonies in the Americas. Also, a lot of indigenous people were brought brought to enslavement. And I feel like that is often very much overlooked and forgotten in American history. So with those caveats, in 1619, a pirate brought the first enslaved Africans to the British colonies, who became the first enslaved African people in the British American colonies. Again, this is not all an all, at all inclusive list of piracy, because it's found in literally every society that's gone to sea. I just mentioned some like big names and events just to sort of set the scene. So from 1619, we're actually going to go back like 30 years or so and return to the Tudors. I know y'all are so excited. So while James I is often referred to as the Witch King or the Witch Hunter King, Elizabeth I is often referred to as the Pirate Queen. And that is because she employed people to just fuck up the Spanish Armada. To be fair, she was not alone in this. The Dutch and French would also do this, but these people were not called pirates. They were called privateers. So privateers were essentially legal pirates. They would often receive letters of mark that they could purchase that would then give the captain permission to defend his ship, but also permission to capture any enemy ship of any nation that you were at war with. Now, when capturing that ship, you can take the ship, the cargo, the supplies, you couldn't take the people. So you couldn't like sell the people into slavery. Um, 
at least you weren't supposed to sell the people into slavery, but I'm sure it happened because humanity is atrocious and the slave trade was already happening. But uh, these letters of Mark said that you were not supposed to. So when Queen Elizabeth I was at war with her former brother-in-law, Philip II of Spain, she sent out what the Spanish referred to as sea dogs. These were privateers who, with the permission of the queen herself, would go and attack and plunder Spanish colonies and ships. They would interrupt the trading and profit immensely. Names of some of these privateers that you may have heard before are Sir Francis Drake and Sir Walter Raleigh. These privateers are largely one of the causes of Philip II being unable to build up the Spanish Armada enough to invade England. Now, a lot of these privateers were of the mindset of like every motherfucker for themselves, right? So they didn't really work together. They weren't like this cohesive rogue navy or anything like that. So they weren't able to completely debilitate the Spanish Armada, but they were definitely a problem for a while for Spain. So again, not at all inclusive history of piracy. We're going to fast forward a little bit to what is called the golden age of piracy. So most historians say that the golden age of piracy is from like 1650 to 1730 in the Atlantic, but the part that is very important in terms of the Atlantic after the war of Spanish succession. So starting around like 1715, there were a lot of people who are now finding themselves unemployed. During the War of Spanish Succession, there were a lot of privateers. And now that the war was over, you had a lot of those people whose entire lives were at sea, who engaged in acts of piracy, legal or not, in time of war. And now what are they going to do? So they went from legal pirates to illegal pirates. Now, piracy is one of those professions that just sort of like kept breeding more the more that they did it. So Being a sailor was tough. Beatings were common. Food was terrible, often scarce. Rum was limited and wages were often not fair. Samuel Johnson said that being a sailor was like being in jail with the chance of being drowned. So when a pirate took over a ship, there were a few things that happened as far as I've read. So often the people would come in and capture the crew and ask if their captain was a good guy. Then they would often just like maroon them somewhere and maybe hold them for ransom if they were a good guy. If they weren't a good guy, then they would just kill him. They would shoot them or torture them or the infamous plank walking. And then the crew would often be given the chance to join them as well. Because one thing that's relatively positive about piracy in today's view is that at least they were democratic. Um, Marcus Redeker says that the most democratic place that you could find in colonial America was on the deck of a pirate ship. The captains were elected by the crew. There was someone who had the job of quartermaster and his job was to make sure that the captain didn't get too corrupt. The captain wasn't allowed to decide the spoils of war or whatever you want to call it. It was the quartermaster who did that. And the captain didn't get anything more than the person who swapped the poop deck. And I think that this is kind of where we get the idea that they're like the Robin Hoods of the sea because pirates who were executed in Boston painted themselves that way. A lot of people who worked on pirate ships were also people who were intended to be sold into slavery. So you often will find pirates in areas where slavery was very common or along the Atlantic slave trade because the cargo that you would find along those routes were extremely lucrative, as fucked up as that is. And now there were pirates who would take these people who were destined to be sold and then sell them and profit immensely off of it because pirates were not good people as a whole. Like, yes, they were democratic, but they were criminals on the sea. But sometimes there would be captains who would board a ship, do their whole thing of like, how is your captain? Okay, cool. Yada, yada, yada. And then offer to the crew, do you want to join us and extend that to the people who are supposed to be sold? So some historians say that about a quarter of pirates during this time were of African descent. Another marginalized group that you will find on a pirate ship was women. 
an often untold part of history is that women were in the Navy and in the army, they were just dressing up as men and like channeling their inner Mulan or whatever. And you see this on pirate ships as well, which brings us to Mary Reed and Anne Bonny. So in 1724, there was a man named Captain Charles Johnson, and he wrote a book called The General History of Pirates from Their First Rise and Settlement in the Islands of Providence to the Present Time with the Remarkable Actions and Adventures of Two Female Pirates. And then in big giant letters, it says Mary Reed and Anne Bonny. And it was sensational that there were female pirates. And it just adds to that quote that I mentioned towards the beginning about the audacity of pirates, right? These individuals are without homes, without cemeteries, without children, without old people, without hope. But what they did have was the audacity. They had the audacity to go against the social norms. They had the audacity to be a democracy where the captain was elected and no decisions were made without group vote. They had the audacity of having checks and balances with officers like the quartermaster who kept the captain from becoming a tyrant. And sometimes they had the audacity to be members of marginalized groups. And sometimes they had the audacity to be women. So we don't know much about Mary Reed. She was born somewhere in England, most likely Devon County, Actually, almost everything that we know about her early life is from Johnson's book, and it's pretty much propaganda. But it says that her mother was married to a sailor, that she had a son named Mark, and then that man abandoned her. And after a while, Mary's mother met someone else. But because she was still legally married, it was still considered an affair. And it is with that man that Mary was born around 1695. So the story goes that they kind of kept Mary secret and her half brother actually died. So they dressed Mary up as him so they could keep receiving money from the boy's grandmother on the boy's father's side. She kept dressing like her brother, even after this grandmother died when she was 13, because society was almost impossible to survive on your own when you're a woman. And there were just way more opportunities for men. And since she was used to living as a boy, she just continued to do so. From everything that I've read about her, she didn't dress as a man because she identified as a man. She dressed like a man because it got her by in life. Now, I don't know how accurate that is because it's very common for historians to just like erase queer folk from history or like play off their reality as like, Oh, they weren't lovers. They were just friends. Uh, They weren't transgender. They just liked wearing men or women's clothes, you know? So to the best of my knowledge, she was a cis woman who dresses a man to get by in society. But I feel like giving that little note because that's just based off the source material we have from this time period. And the reality for Mary Reed could have been very different. So after Mary Reed, like, grew up a little bit more and she decided to keep dressing as a boy even after her grandmother died, she needed more money. So she took a job as a servant. She was a footboy for a wealthy woman in London. She eventually decided that this was not the life for her. So she quit and joined the military, still dressing as a man. She met a soldier who was not ever named in anything that I read. She revealed her true identity to him and they fell in love and got married and moved to the Netherlands where they opened up a small inn called the Three Horseshoes near Castle Breda. But it unfortunately did not last very long because he died. Don't ask me how. I don't know that either. So after he died, she presumably sold the inn and then began living as a man. Again, she eventually found employment as a sailor and she ventured to the West Indies where her ship was boarded by pirates. Again, I'm not sure if they knew her identity or not at this point, if she was actually a woman or not. So also some people say that she was forced into piracy, that whoever boarded her ship threatened that she could either join the crew or that they would kill her. So she joined this This seems like it could have been accurate based off of the sort of things that I have learned. In around 1717 or so, she was in the Bahamas 
when a lot of her companions surrendered when there was this like royal edict that pardoned pirates who turned themselves in. And within a few years, the timeline's a little wonky. She joined the crew of Captain Calico Jack Rockham. And this is where she met Anne Bonny, who was Captain Jack's lover and also a woman. Now, Anne Bonny was born in Ireland, probably around 1698. Again, pretty much everything that we know about her comes from Johnson's book. So like, don't know how accurate this is. But the timeline doesn't really fully make sense when you compare it to Mary's story, which is from the same book, but it is said that she was the Ill- illegitimate daughter of an Irish lawyer named William Cormack, and her mother was one of his maids named Mary Brennan. He was married at the time, and when his my wife found out, they separated but didn't get divorced. Um, but he still began living with Anne and her mother. Now, during this time, the early 1700s, it was not very good for you if you were living this kind of lifestyle. And William lost a lot of his clients in England. So they emigrated to the American colonies and set up a life in Charleston, South Carolina. Unfortunately, Anne's mother died when she was around 13 of typhoid fever. Sickness was extremely common, especially in South Carolina, because it was like so swampy and hot and there was just, it was just common. Um, There was just a slew of diseases that these people's bodies were not used to in the American colonies. There's a rumor that surrounds her that said when she was a teenager, there was a man who tried to sexually assault her and she beat him so badly that he wound up in the hospital. So Anne had the reputation of being a badass bitch, which we naturally love. A couple of years later, I don't know when, but before 1718, her father arranged a marriage for her and she did not want any part of that. So she ran away in 1718 and married a man named John Bonnie in the Bahamas, who was a pirate. <laughs> there, like some of the sources, like he may or may not, he was a pirate. The governor of Bahamas at that time was a man named Woods Rogers, who was a privateer who was very much involved in suppressing illegal piracy. He became governor in 1717 and immediately started going after the piracy in the area, which I find so funny because he like made his life in being a legal pirate. And many of the people who were pirates at the time used to be legal pirates or privateers. So Anne's husband, John, apparently was having a hard time making a living and became a snitch. I mean, he became a pirate informant for Governor Woods Rogers. This very much upset Anne because she had become friends with some of the pirates in the area and then fell in love with a pirate named Captain Calico Jack Rackham and apparently with help from a man named Pierre, who according to one website was a celebrated homosexual who ran a famous brothel, helped her leave her husband and run away with Captain Calico Jack. Jack loved her back and he even offered to pay John to divorce her and John refused. So she left him and together they were just menaces on the sea. She did not conceal her identity as a woman to the men on board. And it was sort of met with apprehension by some of them because like in Pirates of the Caribbean, women were often considered bad luck on board. But when they would board other ships or pillage an area, she would dress as a man so that people wouldn't become suspicious. So around that time that she left her husband, Mary Reed joins Captain Caligo Jack and Anne Bonnie, and they become fast friends. And some even rumored that they were lovers. Mary continued to dress as a man, but everyone knew that she was a woman. Mary Reed and Anne Bonnie had a reputation of being like absolutely fucking ruthless. They swore they were greedy. They were considered promiscuous by that time period standards because they were with men that weren't their husbands. Mary apparently fell in love with a carpenter that was on board the ship. Story continues that at one point, a pirate challenges man to a duel. Mary intervened, fought the man instead and killed him. They were extremely violent and were amazing fighters and they won most of their battles. The story says that they would get these men that they were fighting to the point where they were like disarmed and about to be killed. And then Anne and Mary, who again were dressed as men when they were fighting, would rip open their shirts 
and flash their tits at these guys. So in their last moment, they would realize that a woman was the cause of their death. So they would kill these guys, but first they must emasculate them. Like fucking goals. Am I right? Just kidding. I don't want to kill anybody. Um, they weren't. <laughs> They weren't at it together for long, it seems, though, because in August of 1720, Anne Bonny, Captain Calico Jack, and Mary Reed commandeered a ship called the William, and this was noticed by Woods Rogers, the governor, um, and he declared that the people who stole the ship were enemies of the crown of Great Britain, and specifically named Anne Bonny and Mary Reed. He then sent a privateer named Jonathan Barnett to pursue them in October, and they were apprehended on November 15, 1720. Now, the story continues that their male pirate counterparts were absolutely shit-faced and were immediately apprehended, but that Anne, Bonnie, and Mary Reed just kept fighting. They killed a lot of these legal pirates, but they were outnumbered, captured, and brought to Jamaica for trial. Captain Calico Jack and all of the men were found guilty and were immediately hanged. On November 28th, 1720, Anne, Bonnie, and Mary Reed were also put on trial and found guilty, but their execution was delayed because... <gasps> They both found out that they were pregnant conveniently at the same time. Now, I'm curious if they were actually pregnant or if it's because they were women. They, like, told the judge that they were pregnant to give them time to figure out how to escape. I'm not sure because I couldn't find anything about them having their babies. Mary wouldn't have been able to have her baby regardless because she unfortunately died in April of the next year, apparently contracting a fever while in prison. She's buried at St. Catherine's Parish in Jamaica. And Bonnie, though, was released because her father intervened and she moved back to Charleston, South Carolina, got married to a man named Joseph Burley, had eight children and lived until April 25th, 1782, meaning that she was in her 80s when she died. And that is all I can find. And I am so upset because I want to know more about her life. Like, you're telling me that she was a fucking pirate who used to flash men before she stabbed them in the face and allegedly beat a man de to d nearly to death for attempting to rape her and she just became, like, a happy housewife and didn't do anything else? I find that unbelievable. So... That's the story of Mary Ridden and Bonnie. It's an interesting story and Atlantic piracy is really interesting. But there are aspects of Chinese piracy and a little bit Japanese and Korean piracy as well that we'll talk about that I find more interesting. And that might just be because I know nothing about Chinese piracy before I had to do this research paper. Um, so let's talk about it. I'm probably just going to quote some of my paper directly because why not? I put the time in to write it. I have no problem self-plagiarizing. Um... I'm also going to apologize in advance if I mispronounce any of these Chinese or Asian words. I do my best, but I can acknowledge that pronunciation of names and words in languages that I'm not fluent in is not an area that I am confident in. So again, concept of piracy and sea exploration was not something new in ancient China. Sea exploration largely started with tales of magic, which you know is like right up my fucking alley, right? So the first large wave of piracy that's seen in Eastern Asia is in the fifth century of the Common Era. James E. Wadsworth argues that China and like into Japan and Korea as well created a perfect geography for piracy because it had a great coastline and navigable rivers and a lot of resources and trade points. And then we see this uptick of piracy during the Jin Dynasty, which was 266 to 420 of the Common Era, when they tried to unify China. <laughs> but had a really weak military, so it didn't last. And this weakness sort of mixed with the abundance that was found with trade, and this led to an increase in piracy. The first real name that I could find of Chinese pirates was a man named Sun En, Sun En, 
who had been banished at one point, he then gathered an army of people who were unhappy with the present situation in China, and together they raided the coast. He was defeated in the fall of 400 CE, but his brother-in-law Lu Tan picked up the torch, so to speak, and in 410, he led a fleet of over 1,000 ships containing approximately 100,000 men to attack the capital, but was also defeated and later executed. I do have to say, though, that while these stories of piracy in like ancient China exist, China during the later periods before the common era and into the early common era very much pushed the ancient Confucian ideology of agriculture before business. So naval forces were really only like this secondary arm for controlling piracy, domestic defense, and occasionally overseas campaigns. More often than not, it was used for transporting men and supplies. The Chinese Navy in early China was also not a static presence and was only deployed when needed. As far as trade, China's economy was self-sufficient for the most part and not based in maritime commerce with other countries, unlike what you see in a lot of other areas during this time. Ancient China was largely an agricultural society, and even when they did occasionally trade, like through the Silk Road, they did so by land, even though travel by sea was arguably safer and took way less time. But over time, agriculture was affected by the climate. Areas that used to have abundant water supplies and fertile soil were finding the rivers were drying up. And by 1000 CE, areas that used to be like 675,000 acres of farmland were now only 30 acres of farmland. This decrease in land combined with like civil wars that were happening in the area led to a push for other means of living and a rise in Chinese seafaring can be seen in like a direct correlation to this. So in the 1130s, the Chinese government began building up the stronger navy, reducing their river fleets to focus on the high seas to guard strategic vulnerable points along their coast. While they commissioned the building of new ships, they also leased merchant ships as well. In the year 1132, Zhu Yu, the imperial commissioner for the defense of the seacoast, requested the authorization to take over 500 ships from merchants who was like, this was met with a lot of opposition because it would cause the merchants hardship and could lead to revolt or destruction of ships. But a greater concern that began to arise that took up much of the Navy's time was the suppression of piracy. In 1127, the Jurchen steppe nomads took the capital city of Kifeng. And in result, pirates began feeling bold. They attacked merchant ships and pillaging coastal cities. And there is a large increase in piracy in 1130 and 1140s. The war against piracy at this time was twofold in purpose. It not only reduced the piracy, but it also trained the Navy that they were trying to build up. China was actually starting to become more of a naval power to compete with. But again, the Navy was not a priority. And when China entered a time of relative peace, the desire to build up ships for a Navy like completely seized. So the next period of piracy that's seen in ancient China is during the mid 14th century, following the death of Kublai Khan in 1294. In the mid 14th century, the Yuan government was pressed for funds and food, and in result levied more taxes on people who were already very heavily burdened. This led to a peasant revolt and lawlessness that took to the seas. Following these hard times, and most likely to prevent piracy from taking root again as a threat to the government, the Ming Dynasty that began in 1368, quote, attempted to prohibit all seaborne traffic, except that associated with official imperial tribute missions. The 1370s to 1390s is uh, a time of like attempted union and collective suppression of piracy between China, Japan, and Korea. However, this is also 
historically where the rise of a large piratical group known as the Waco or Woku emerges. So something I found interesting was actually like what the term like Woku meant. So Woku became a term to basically refer to like non-agricultural and uncivilized part of society. It's a Chinese term that's quite pejorative and derogatory towards the Japanese actually that combines the character for dwarf and bandit that combines the character of dwarf and bandit. Historically, it's been said that the Woku pirates were strictly Japanese. And so this terminology like made sense for the Chinese to call them that. However, most of the people who were on these pirate ships were actually Chinese. So in the 16th century, a man named Chen recounts being captured by Woku pirates and finding only 20 Japanese on board, but 50 Chinese from all over China. The Woku were a hybrid of people plying the waters of the inner sea who benefited from this cross-cultural pollination. The Woku had Chinese, Japanese, Korean, Saibis, Spaniards, Portuguese, and Dutch, amongst others, on board. These ships that had Chinese designs, Western cannons and riggings that were navigated by Portuguese charts. It was just like a melting pot of all these different cultures on these pirate ships. So then the question arises, why have these people been historically characterized as strictly Japanese? And why are they going by this term that's derogatory towards Japanese people? Is it because the Chinese were attempting to unite under a common enemy? People who are aligned with Japanese amongst others were enemies of the state? I don't have the answer to that. That's literally just a question that I have. So this Ming period fought piracy into the mid 16th century until some of the trade restrictions were lifted, but it wasn't good enough to end piracy in China. In fact, it led to what many historians regard as the golden age of Chinese piracy, which was from 1520 to 1810. To compare to the West, The golden age of piracy found in the Atlantic is usually said to be from 1650 to 1730, but like 1716 to 1726 is really the heart of it, you know? So over the almost 300 year period of the golden age of piracy in China, there were no less than 70,000 pirates compared to the maximum of around 5,000 pirates in the Atlantic. The golden age of piracy in China saw people who were forced into the life on the seas through poverty. These people were often men in their 20s to 30s who were unmarried or un or underemployed and in severe debt. They often found themselves on pirate ships because they would take any job that was offered to them just out of like pure desperation. So one area that's similar to the Pirates of the Atlantic is that most people that found themselves on pirate ships did not become professional pirates, but engage in acts of piracy when they were in need of extra income. However, due to the like prevalence of pirates, it was never hard to find a job within the fleet. And it often became essentially like part-time work for a lot of people. The golden age of piracy did not only see job opportunities and prosperity for those engaging in acts of piracy, but also provided jobs and wealth for people all over China who traded and engaged in other business with pirates. While piracy was bad for the governmental economy, it was great for individual economy. So pirates also at times offered protection to merchants for a fee. So any ship and coastal town was subject to attack, but people could purchase safe conduct passes that would allow certain people to work and conduct business without impunity. Unlike much of China, the culture of pirates and seafarers did not share the dominant Confucian values of honesty, frugality, self-restraint, and hard work, but rather espoused deception, ambition, recklessness, and getting ahead by any means necessary. But it was just the realities of the seas, you know. 
The golden age of piracy in China did not only provide opportunities for men who were under or unemployed, but it also allowed opportunities for women that would not be seen in other parts of China or even the rest of the world. So many men would eventually marry and their wives would then make their homes on the ships with their husband. These women would live and die as outlaws and several of them became leaders of pirate fleets. So to compare once more to the Atlantic and Bonnie and Mary Reed were not respected as women and would often have to disguise themselves as men, like we talked about um, when they boarded ships or like engaged in combat. But Chinese female pirates did not have to disguise themselves. As long as they were able to prove themselves and survive in this like male dominated world, they were respected and viewed as capable. Perhaps for women, piracy was the only way to be independent. It turned the patriarchal society upside down and challenged everything the state stood for. So even though piracy was violent and brutal and full of extortion and misdeeds for women, it could have been one of the best options that was offered to them. And it certainly was one of the best options for Cheng Shi, also sometimes referred to as Zheng Yao So or Cheng Shi. So she was born Zheng Yao So in 1775. And I couldn't really find a lot about her early life other than the fact that she was a sex worker in a floating brothel in Canton which also happened to be a pirate's nest, which was obviously important for later. So she was known for her incredibly effective pillow talk and was able to influence men. And she was able to use this information to then wield power over everyone, really. And this attracted one specific man's attention, Cheng Yi. So in 1801, when she was 26 years old, she married Cheng Yi, who was a pirate descended from a long line of pirates. He led a large pirate confederation that consisted of like 40,000 men and 600 ships split into six factions that each had its own captain and sailed under different colored flags. Cheng Yi commanded the largest of these factions, the one known as the Red Flag Fleet, that had over 200 ships and they were just fucking terrors. The story says that Cheng Yi Sao was the co-ruler and was just as vicious as her husband. They robbed anyone and everyone. They stole silk, gold, silver, porcelain, tea, and then sold this to cities and ports along the coasts. They would also attack city and ports along the coasts. So I think it was just sort of like this vicious circle that they would do. They were really well known and she was very well respected as a pirate. Cheng Yi Sao uh, and Cheng Yi had two children together, but tragedy struck the family in 1807 when during a typhoon, Cheng Yi fell off the boat and drowned. And this left his large fleet in need of a leader. It was inherited by a man named Cheng Posai, who was sort of like an adopted son of Cheng Yi, but they had also been lovers. Like, I, I guess like, I guess Cheng Yi had taken him in as like a, a young man or, or like a child and then like, I guess, groomed him. Um, but this was like typical at that time. It's sort of like how in Greek society they, they would do this as well. From what I've gathered, again, like Chinese history is not my strong suit. It's also Chinese piracy. It's not something that I would call myself an expert in. But from the research that I've done, this was like pretty typical. So from here, different sources say different things. So some say that Cheng Po did inherit the fleet and then Cheng Yi Sao became his lover soon after and was able to sort of like make her way back up to the top, eventually took ownership of this long, large fleet that her husband was in control of. And other accounts say that directly after Cheng Yi's death, the remaining five captains met to try and figure out who would take his position as head of this large fleet. And 
they elected Cheng Yi Sao. So these other people were captains, but Cheng Yi was like in charge of all of them. And they elected Cheng Yi Sao. This is when she started being known as Cheng Shi, which means widow of Cheng. And then she took Cheng Po as her lover. And he he was her lover for sure. There's just like, I don't know if like, he became her lover and then she rose to power or if she rose to power and then he became a lover but like they they for sure were lovers um <laughs> under her command the fleet grew the amount of men had doubled to over like eighty thousand, and the amount of ships had tripled she commanded 1800 ships that's the largest pirate fleet in world history ever to compare that to arguably the most well-known atlantic pirate blackbeard only commanded four ships and 300 people now, I do have to say that she probably built this up so quickly because the way that she ran things is when they won, like, whatever battle on the ship. The remaining opposing crew were given the option of joining the pirate fleet or being flogged to death, and it isn't surprising that she was able to build this up so quickly with those being the only options. Ching Shi established an intense set of laws to lead the fleet that largely could have been attributed to demanding respect as a woman. So the first law was that any pirate who violated the orders of their superior would be beheaded on the spot. If a member of the crew were to steal from the public fund of goods or money that they had pillaged, they would be executed. All of these goods and money and anything else would be inspected and then distributed in a predetermined way. So if you stole from it, you were stealing from everyone. If the crew were to take in a captive and some were to be female, they were required by law to treat these women with respect. If a member of her crew raped a female captive, they would be put to death. And if they were to engage in consensual sex with a female captive, the man would be beheaded and the woman would be thrown overboard with weights tied to her. Sorry, there's a thunderstorm outside. So if you hear that, that's what's going on. And it sort of like sets the ambiance <laughs> for what we're talking about right now. Uh, however, if a member of the crew were to take one of those captives as his wife, he was required by law to be faithful to her. Punishments on board included beheading for dissipating an order um, or stealing, like I said, getting ears cut off for deserting or disappearing for a time without permission, whipping for hiding plundered goods from the rest of the crew. And for the lesser offenses, if someone was to repeat the offense a second time, they would be immediately beheaded. So she had these intense set of laws that she set in place, but people followed them because she was just a, like a really amazing leader. She was completely undefeated. The Qing Dynasty, the Portuguese Navy, and the East India Company, were, who were like all known to be fierce on the sea, were absolutely no match for her. And when I say uh, amazing leader, I mean for a pirate. She was absolutely ruthless and was the cause of death for a lot of people. There was a battle in July of 1808 that was so intense that the naval leader committed suicide afterwards. An example of how ruthless she was as a leader of the pirate fleet. Let's talk about what happened in July of 1809. So this was... Um, a more difficult battle than normal because both Chengxi and the Chinese Navy were at a standstill because there was no wind. They couldn't really attack each other and they couldn't really flee either. So Chengxi ordered some of her men to swim to the Chinese naval ships and board them and take everything over. And concurrently, they began torturing the coast and they kept at it. And a few weeks later, they went to a village, burnt it, executed 80 villagers and hung their heads from a tree along the coast to warn others. And then the next month, they killed a thousand villagers. They went up and down the coast and killed over 10,000 civilians who had nothing to do with their battle just to show the Chinese Navy how ruthless they could be. And like I said, she very quickly grew the, grew the fleet. And like when I say quickly, I mean quickly because she took over in 1807 and she retired in 1810. When she retired, 
there were starting to be like breakdowns in her fleet anyway. Her fleet was getting too large to actually be able to command. And there were a lot of dissenters, including a man named Kuo Potai, who did not like how much power Chang she had. And he was jealous of Chang Po, um, that he was like her second in command and her lover. So there was this battle in November of 1809 and they called for Kuo Potai's help and he refused. And so in retaliation, Chang Po attacked his fleet and Kuo was victorious, but knew that he would most likely not be victorious again. So he surrendered to the Chinese government and received a full pardon and became a pirate hunter. Chang Shi realized that like everything was falling apart at this point. So she sailed her entire fleet to Canton, marched up to the authorities and on April 18th of 1810 demanded a pardon and they gave it to her because the Navy just wanted to be done with pirates. And if this was how they had to do it, then this is how they had to do it. Right. So she received a full pardon, was able to keep everything that she plundered, but had to give up her ships and her weapons. Her lover, Cheng Po, also received a pardon and then became her husband. He also became a pirate hunter that tracked down some of the people that used to be in their fleet. They then moved back to Canton, had one son together. And Cheng Shi, some people say, ran a brothel. Others say that she led a smuggling ring that was portraying itself as a gambling house and just sort of like continued her life. We barely know anything else about her life. And again, I am so fucking frustrated with that because I want to know. You can't just be like a leader of the best pirate fleet in history, the biggest and and most fierce and astounding pirate fleet in history, and then just become like a business owner and not do anything else. Like, it just does not make sense to me that you could do that, but apparently that's what happened. And she died peacefully in her sleep in 1844 at the age of 69. So when I was doing my research, I read a quote by Robert Antony that I found kind of interesting. I actually think I ended my paper talking about this. Pirates have been depicted variously as bloodthirsty villains, treacherous rogues, sword fighting heroes, champions of the poor, and avengers against injustice. The irony of this, of course, is that a society that has worked so hard to eliminate piracy over the past several centuries has continued to immortalize pirates as colorful folk heroes. And I think that's so true and so funny because popular culture has depicted pirates as these lovable rogues when actually most of them, if not all of them, were absolutely terrors of the sea and you would never want to cross their paths. So that is all for today. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard and want to hear more, please consider subscribing or leaving a review or joining my Patreon. And remember, friends, history may be watching you. So don't fuck it up. And where has all the rum gone? (laughs) Bye. (laughs) So stupid. (laughs) 